that is what it is. Every time we come to the Word of God, when I open my Bible in the morning to read it, I'm not reading it to fulfill some obligation, but I'm reading the Word, believing that this is God speaking personally to me today. And there's some, there's some chapters that I know by heart just because I've read them so many times. And the danger when that is is you already know what it's going to say, but I refuse to allow that to happen to me. Instead, I ask the Spirit of God to speak to me. And I want to come away with my time in the Word of God knowing that God has put something in me, has touched me in some way. Sometimes it doesn't come out maybe until later in the day or later in the week, but God is depositing something in you. And that's even truer when we come together on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings and whenever else we may come together to hear the Word of God. Whether you've stuck a CD in your player in the car or at home and on some MP3 player, whenever you hear the Word of God, expect God to speak to you by His Spirit. Because this is the means, the primary means by which God has ordained to change our lives. The Bible says we are changed or transformed through the renewing of our minds. But renewing of our minds to what? It's to what God says in His Word. And that's what we're about. And as we do that, something very supernatural will take place. God will take, understand this, that God has already deposited in you everything He's ever going to give you in terms spiritually. The Bible says in Romans 5.5 5, that the love of God has been shed abroad or poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. When you were born again, the Spirit, God literally breathed His own Spirit into you. That's how you were born again. That's how you were, your nature was changed into His nature. And we are, live our life in this earth in the process of working that salvation out. Philippians chapter 2 talks about working that salvation out. But understand this, therefore, when you read the Word of God, the Spirit of God that's in you will take this Word and He will illuminate something to you. He will, he, will, he will shine a light in you of something that's always been in you since you were saved, but now you just see it for the first time. It's not dropping down out of heaven. Understand this. God the Father lives in heaven. He's seated on His throne in heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, is seated at His right hand. Spiritually, you're seated at the right hand in Him. That's what Ephesians tells us in chapter 2. That physically, we're here on the earth. But God's Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the living God, is living in you. God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit living in you. In, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, one of the most important verses to me in the Bible, it says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. But the next verse says, But they're revealed to us by the Spirit. So one of the assignments of the Holy Spirit in dwelling in you is to take the deep secrets of God that are contained in this Word. There's nothing in God that's not in this Word for you. And, draw, and, and make that clear to you down in your spirit and down in your soul. So that's what we're about this morning. We're talking about something that you've heard about before. But the danger of that as well in your, is to hear and listen with this and hear it in your mind alone. That's why Jesus said to his disciples on several occasions, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in Revelation, it says, in each of those letters to the church at the end, it says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Spirit of God is saying something to Faith Christian Center. The Spirit of God is saying something to Faith Christian Center. And we need to listen. But to hear, so you can hear with ears, these ears, but not hear with these ears. And it's these ears that count. And so I just felt led to go into what, what we're about to do. We're about to engage in something supernatural. It's wonderful when you see miracles, people come out of wheelchairs. It's wonderful when there's a supernatural manifestation of the Spirit of God in front of everybody and we all clap and get excited. That's wonderful. But something just as supernatural, in some ways maybe more supernatural, is about to take place. Sitting in your blue chair... And that's the Spirit of the living God is about to show you something that God wants you to know that you cannot discover through your own mental exercises and your own intelligence and your own effort. The Bible talks about several things. It talks about the peace of God that passes understanding. We're going to look at a, at a, at a prayer that talks about the love of God that passes understanding. That means that you understand that 
aside from your mind. You understand it down in here, and it's received by revelation. Revelation is when God personally shows you something, not that nobody's ever thought of before, but he shows you something inside of you that's been in you all along. It's in you now, but he shines his light on it so that you can begin to see it. And so he shows it to us, so not just so we can walk out of here saying what a wonderful, blessed service that was, but we walk out of here being different. The end of, I think it's Ezekiel 33, he warns the prophet Ezekiel. And I don't want to take time to turn there, but it's very eye-opening. He says, understand this. He says, when you preach what I'm telling you to preach, they won't listen to you. Now, I don't believe that's true here. But he says, here's why they're doing. He says, they come and sit and listen to you, and they have no intention of applying it in their lives. And they leave, and they say what wonderful words they were. And he goes on to say, it is as if they've been entertained. So when we come, and I'm speaking to myself as much as to you, when we come to hear a, a great message or a great, a great uh, time of worship, and we should, but we don't listen to those and experience those with the intention of having them change us on the inside, then there's no difference in that coming to church than going to hear a, see a wonderful play or watch a great movie or see something by which we come away feeling good, but it hasn't changed us. It's no different. That's what the Word of God says. So we come recognizing that God, by the Spirit of God, wants to, is, is speaking something to Faith Christian Center. And I can feel it in me. I can feel the heart of God. I've had occasion, this because we're talking about love, I've had occasion over the last few weeks to walk in it. <laughs> It's just when you start preaching, I was talking, sharing with Neil Gass, talking with him the other day. So many of you know who he is, and he passed his love along to you. Um, I said, well, you know, I've just been, you know, this is one of these times when stuff comes at you. You ever have days and weeks when stuff comes at you? I said, but I understand it because I'm preaching on love. He says, why would you do such a foolish thing as that? <laughs> because it's the Word of God, and God's commanded us to us. And it is the place of victory. Walking in the love of God is, and this is where we're headed with this, it is the place of victory. There is no victory, spiritual victory, apart from walking in love. Because when you walk apart from love, you walk in your own strength. You cannot walk in the power and strength of God and not walk in love. You can't do it. Why? Because God is love. So to say, I'm going to walk in the victory. I have the victory. I have the anointing. But not be walking in God's kind of love is to say, God, you stay over here. I'm going to take your victory and bring your victory over here, but I'm leaving you over there. See, because God is love. You can't have him in it and not be in love. It's impossible. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Well, I'm so far off my notes now, it doesn't matter. Turn with me to John chapter 13. And, and what we're talking about, the root of all this is in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, which has really been our, our message for most of the year, because I believe it is the message for this church. And it ends by talking about how each part of the body of Christ here is to take our place and to do what we're called to do, just like each part of your body must take its place and do what it's called to do. But the key to this whole thing, all of this study, is the end of verse 16. It says, everybody take their place, the proper working of each individual part, for the building up of itself, and there's the key, in love. The building up of the body of Christ in love. We said, well, why is it in love? Why is it in faith? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. We're saved by faith. So why shouldn't we be built up in faith? Well, we should walk in faith. We are to grow in faith. The Bible tells us to grow in faith. We, but, but why is faith not the thing? How come it's not holiness? Does that mean we're not supposed to be holy or righteous? Of course not. The Bible says without holiness, no one's going to see God. We, 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 we have to walk in holiness and righteousness. We're not throwing those things out. But the thing the Bible teaches us. The one thing above everything else that matters is the building up of itself in love. 
And we saw why, because we looked in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and then in verse 16, and we saw the key to understanding this. It's because God is love. Not that God loves a lot. Not that God loves more than anybody else. But God is love. So you cannot do anything that involves God unless it also involves love. Because to have love, God without the love, is like trying to have the water without the wet. Did you ever take a shower and you walked out of the shower dry? No, because the wet comes with the water. It's part of what the water is, is the wet. Well, God is love. And if you're going to do anything with God... You've got to do it with love because God is love. And then we've got to decide to look, well, what is this love that God is? And that's where you come to first for John, John chapter 13. Jesus gives a definition of it. Verse 34. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. All right, we understand that. And here's the definition. As I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So what we've seen is Jesus gave a definition of love, but it was not a theological definition. It was a practical living definition. He said, you've watched me for three and a half years, and you're going to see me for another 12 hours. Watch what I do, because what I do is living out what this love is that I'm commanding you to do for one another. Now, if you look earlier in this chapter, you'll see that he's already acted some of this out, because this chapter begins by, by, by them coming together to share the last Passover that they were going to have together. It's interesting, because it begins with a verse that says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. Now the King, New King James says to the end. Some other translations say to the limit. The Greek word there is telos, teleos, which literally means both. It means to whatever was necessary, that's what he loved them. There was no limit. Whatever he had to give, he gave. That's what that word means. So he, and then it goes on to this story that is so powerful to me, and we've told it before, and I'll just summarize it for you. They're sitting down there sharing the la, the, their, 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 their Passover meal together, and it's a situation where they're in a rented room. And normally in someone's house, if you were in their house, when you walked in, the lowest slave's job was to wash your feet because they wore sandals in the streets. Many of them were not paved. And you would come in as you were being greeted. This low slave would wash your feet and then put your sandals back on and then you would go on and it was such a, a common menial task that in most cases you probably would not have even noticed it was done for you. But this was a rented room. There was no slave assigned. There was no servant assigned. But there was a bowl of water and there was a towel. And they went all the way through their meal with dirty feet. And understand this, they didn't sit in chairs like we do up under a table. They reclined on pillows, which means my feet was in some, were in someone's face. <laughs> but no one even washed their own feet because to have washed their own feet would have addressed the issue of, well, what about my brothers? What about the other disciples? So when the meal was over, Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garment, goes over to the bowl, takes the towel, wraps the towel around himself, takes the bowl of water, and goes around and washes each of the disciples' feet. And when he finished, I'm sure all eyes were on him. I'm sure you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. And when he finished, he said, do you know what it is I've done? He didn't just wash their feet. He was proving something to them. He saw you call me master and Lord, and that's what I am. Master and Lord. Over in Philippians chapter 2, which is where we're going to go in a minute, it says, in fact, turn over there now. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. 
because this gives us a little different, a bigger, a broader perspective on this. But he says, you call me master and Lord, and I am. But if I, master and Lord, have washed your feet, you should do so for one another. In other words, whereas in a normal household, that job was assigned to the lowest slave, he said, you call me master and Lord, and that's what I am. I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. I created this universe. John chapter 1, we looked at last time, we saw that Jesus, literally, God created the universe through him. In John chapter 1, it says, he came unto his own, and they recognized him not. So the people that he created didn't recognize who he was in most cases, and yet he came to serve them. And so here he says to them in John 13, what he did is he says, I am master and Lord. You call me that and that's what I am. But what I've done as master and Lord is washed your feet. I didn't consider the position that I came from. I didn't consider my authority and my power as something to be held on to, but I laid it aside. And that's what it says here in Philippians chapter 2. Let's look in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than themselves. We're talking about the definition of love that we're commanded to walk in, the definition of love that God is. It's not the love that the world has. We're going to see that this morning. But it is a different kind of love. It's a different level of love. It's got a totally different foundation to it and a totally different purpose to it. It's almost in a different class. It's almost, it's, and that's why the Greek uses a different word for it in most cases. And so Jesus didn't define it with words. He defined it with his life. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem or value others as better than himself. We looked last week and saw that that word esteem is an act of your will. It's a choice you make to value something or someone. And we're to value others as better than ourselves. Does that mean we are better than one another? He's not saying we are. What he's saying is we are to treat each other and esteem each other and consider each other as if we were better than, ourse- than, each- than ourselves. Verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. And this is the key. Let this mind be in you which also is in Christ Jesus. In Colossians, I think it says, have the mind of Christ. And a lot of people have taught that means we can, we, we can be as smart as he is. And it may be true, I don't know. But I believe what these verses are telling us is to have the mind of Christ is to think the way he thinks. To esteem the way he esteems. To consider what he considers as important. Let this mind be in you which also... So this is the way Christ thought, thinks. Who being in the form of God did not regard it... Equ- Equality with God, something to be held on to. The New King James says, did not regard it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he had a right to sit at the right hand of God and share his glory. Why? Because he was the full expression of who the God, the Creator, the Father was. John chapter 1 again says, in the beginning was the Word, the full expression of God. So we see this, that he did not regard the position, he had a position in heaven before he came to this earth and took on flesh as Jesus. He was the second person of the Godhead, the exact representation of God the Father in all his glory, in all his power, in all his majesty, and he was entitled to it. We sang a song this morning, Majesty, which is, which is an effort to capture the feeling of that majesty. And of course, we'll never understand what that majesty is until we really see it face to face. Before we looked at this, we looked over in Ezekiel chapter uh, 38 and then we looked in Eze- 28 in Isaiah 14 and we saw the extreme contrast to this. We saw Lucifer, the anointed cherub that, God, that surrounded the throne of God and in all likelihood led the worship in heaven. We saw that he was the most beautiful creature that God ever made. And we saw that he became lifted up because he began to look at himself. And as he looked at himself, he began to admire himself. And the problem was the moment he took his eyes off of God as the source of himself and of his beauty, he began to look at himself, he began to be deluded by thinking he was the source of his own beauty and the source of his own ability. And here's the fatal problem with that. 
because that, then he begins to think he's entitled to something other than what God gives him out of his grace. And we saw that he became so lifted up that ambition began to grow in his heart and he began to develop this attitude that he would make himself like the Most High. In other words, his ambition was to take that second place that was assigned to the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his ambition. And he was lifted up in that because he kept looking at himself and his own gifting and his own ability. And so he became lifted up in pride. And we saw that that's the root of all sin is when we start looking at ourselves apart from God. And then we saw in Isaiah 14, he entered into Eden. And in Eden, he began to recruit. In the Garden of Eden, he began to recruit because he'd been kicked out of heaven from his rebellion, which only lasted as long as a lightning bolt. He'd been kicked down to this earth. And when God brings his crowning creation, man, and puts him in this earth, Lucifer, now Satan, targets this man. And he targeted it through the woman. And he came at her and tried to convince her that there was something she was entitled to that God was keeping from her. The same sin he committed, the root of the sin that drove him into sin is the same seed he tried to plant in her heart and he was successful. And we saw that's the same seed that he tries to plant in our heart. Before you were born again, you're born into that attitude. We're born into the self-preservation, self-promotion, self, self, self. Everything's interpreted around how does that affect me? What does that mean about me? And we developed this attitude growing up, I'm entitled to certain things. I'm entitled to certain things. And then we get saved, and God puts His nature inside of us. And His nature is what we're looking at now. His nature is the kind of love we're talking about. But He puts that nature in us, but He doesn't change our way of thinking. And He doesn't change our flesh. That nature, that tendency is still in our flesh. Your flesh wants to strike out. It wants to strike back. It wants to get even with people. Because when you try to get even with somebody, it's because somebody's done something to you that was not, that was not just or right. So you want to get back at them so that they pay a price. We saw that that's a doctrine of demons in, John, in James chapter 4. That doctrine comes right out of hell. Selfishness, selfish ambition, pride, envy, strife, all comes through demons because it's, in, it's working the work that, Lu, that Lucifer did when he was cast down to heaven. This is serious stuff. And so we looked at that as a contrast. Then we looked last week at, at what God's love is like. It's the opposite of that. Actually, Lucifer's sin is the opposite of God's love. God's love's not based on what thing, how things affect him, but on what's best for you. So that's what Paul's writing about here. He says, Have this mind in you that's also in Christ Jesus, who did not regard the position that he was entitled to, something to be held on to. But goes on and said, literally in the Greek and in some translations, he emptied himself. He took all his glory, his majesty, he took all his privileges and rights as the second person of the Godhead, and he just emptied them out. And he took on human flesh. And you and I cannot begin to grasp the humbling that that was. To step out of the glory and majesty of heaven where you're the focus of all worship and to step down into this earth and take on human flesh with all its weaknesses and all its frailties. But he did it. Why? Because he esteemed you as more valuable than himself and what he was entitled to. That is the nature, the essence of God's love, is to esteem others as more valuable than yourself and then to act accordingly. So we're going to begin to flesh some of this out and look at some of what this means. So we're going to go now, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You knew we'd go there sometime. Now, as I've taught you before, this is commonly called the love chapter, and that's not wrong. It's all about love. But really, that's not ultimately its purpose. This is among some scriptures that are talking about correcting the church at at Corinth because they were operating as spiritual things, but they were operating in them in a very carnal way. And the power of God was operating through them. 
And he says in chapter 12, he talks about the gifts of the Spirit as manifestations of the Spirit of God. And to manifest something is to make it so you can see it. It's to take something that you can't see that really does exist, but you just can't see it, and then make it so it can appear, so that you can see it. And so, so the gifts of the Spirit are that. Their purpose is to take the Spirit of God whom we can't see. The Bible says He's present among us, not just in us, but among us, because Jesus said, where two or more of us are, ga- you are gathered in His name, there I will be in your midst. Well, He's seated at the right hand of the Father, so He's in our midst by the Holy Spirit being among us right here, right now, not just in us, but among us. But you can't see Him with your natural eyes. I mean, if you can, that's supernatural. So the gifts of the Spirit are simply a way by which the Spirit of God makes His presence known because something supernatural happens so that people look at that and say, well, that couldn't be, that's not natural. Somebody could not know that about me naturally. It had to be revealed by God. So the purpose of these gifts is to manifest and make God's presence known and also what His nature and character is like known. And in the middle of these two chapters, 12 and 14, which are talking about that, the Spirit of God sticks chapter 13, because what he go, look at what it says. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. These are gifts of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, if I operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but they're not done out of this kind of love to God, they count as nothing. Because when I operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but I'm not motivated by the God type of love, then it's not esteeming others more highly than myself. It's for my show. It's showing off who I am. And look at the gifts God's given me. And that does not promote God, because God is love. It promotes me. And who was the origin of promoting themselves. Lucifer, who became Satan. And understanding this, that once you're saved, he doesn't just fold his hands and say, well, I'm done with them. There's nothing I can do with them. So I'm going to go find somebody that's not saved and I'm going to work on them. Oh, no. You become a target. Because if he can take one of God's children with the anointing of God upon their lives and get them working for his purposes all that power begins to work for His purposes. That's why we have to guard ourselves against pride, against anything that's designed to lift myself up because that's what His goal is, is to get you to look at yourself, look at the gifts you have. Now, we've talked about the gifts you have, but they're to take them and to give them back to Him in love. That's what, the whole, that's what this is all about. And so we see here the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, writes this about operating in the gifts of the Spirit, operate, flowing in the Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit, manifesting the gifts of the Spirit are, have to be motivated out of this type of love. Otherwise, they work against the kingdom of God and they work for the kingdom of Satan. Very serious stuff. Well, here's the proof of it. Look at verse 4. This is a description of how love acts. Love suffers long. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now I want to go through and read that differently. And I can do it because it's based on Scripture. Because God is love. So I'm going to read this substituting God for love. And let's see if that's true. God suffers long. Has He suffered long with you? He suffered long with me. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not parade Himself. God is not puffed up. God does not behave rudely. God does not seek His own. God is not provoked. God does not think evil. God does not rejoice in iniquity, but God rejoices in the truth. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things. God never fails. 
So we see now the acting of this out is that God in the form of Christ, looking at all of his privileges and all of his glory and all of his rights, and then looked at you and had to decide which was more valuable to him, laid his rights and his privileges and his glory down and chose you. Because he understood that he couldn't have you and have all that glory. Because in order to have you, somebody had to die for you and me. And to take your sin and my sin upon themselves. But I want you to see that he did that because he loves you with this kind of love. He loves you with this kind of love. Go over with me to Romans chapter 5. We're looking at what this love does. Verse 6. For when we were still without strength, that means the strength to save ourselves, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will someone die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's read that again. Verse 7. Scarcely for a righteous man, someone might die. There's a, there's a famous book written by Charles Dickens. I mentioned him earlier this morning. And, and it's called A Tale of Two Cities. And it's a very famous classic story. And in there, there's a story of two men who look very much alike. And, and, and one of them has just lived a terrible life. He was arrested, he got out of jail, and, and another who's a righteous man, he's self-sacrificing, he's done all the right things he's just supposed to do, and he goes over to France during the French Revolution, and he's mistaken for somebody. He's arrested uh, in, the, in, the, in the terrible carnage, and he's condemned to, be, to die, to be beheaded. And what happened, I don't want to ruin the story for you if you've never read it, but this, my, my point is is, 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 is the other guy, the guy that was always wrong, never was, just, his life was a mess, decided he's going to do one good thing before he dies. And he sneaks himself into prison and he takes the place of this other guy. And he's motivated to do that and he feels justified to do it because he feels that the guy whose place he took has always lived such a good life. Therefore, it was worthwhile for him to die in his place because he'd made such a mess of his life. He would now do one good thing. And as unselfish as that appears, there's still a root of selfishness in that because he was redeeming himself by doing it. Good thing to do, but the point is there. The emotion that grabs you at the end of that book is that this is, this, this is, a, this is a good thing to do because the man that was condemned to die did not deserve to die. And the one that was going to take his place really did deserve to die so that what was right was actually being taken place right now. That's what Jesus means by this. In our, the economy of the way we normally think, in the way we normally think, we can, we can work ourselves up and say, yeah, that, that was a nice thing to do. That was a good thing to do because that righteous man did not deserve to die. He was just caught in a set of circumstances that were not justify his death. And the guy that took his place, he really, his life was worth giving up for his. So Jesus is, or Paul is saying here by the Holy Spirit, yes, we can understand that it would be okay to die for a just man. For a righteous man would die when we, one would die. Yet perhaps for a good one, someone might even dare to die. But look at verse 8. That's not what God's love is like. That's what the world's love is like. But God demonstrated His own type of love towards us. And then while we were still sinners... Now, you're, see, I was praying about this this morning and realizing we don't really understand the full impact of that. What it means in God's eyes to be a sinner. We just mean it's not going to get to heaven. It's not good. But understand this, because you compare sin to what you think righteousness is or holiness is. And what we do is we live among each other and what we tend to do is we compare ourselves with each other. So in this story, the tale of two cities, you look at these two men at the end and you compare them by each other. So the guy that chose to give his life up, his life was not worth as much as the guy who chose to give it for because by comparison, the one was much more righteous than the other. That's how we tend to think. And we just think of God as being very righteous 
and very holy. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he is absolutely holy. The Bible says he is absolutely perfect. The Bible also says in Romans chapter 8 that until we came to Christ, we were enemies of his. We were his enemies. Now that's hard to grab because, well, I didn't hate him. Did you obey him? Did you worship him? Did you acknowledge his authority in your life? Or did you want to live your life for yourself? Who was ruling your life? You or God? I'm talking to me too. I'm not getting on your case. I'm trying to point something out here. So we send, see, I've shared this with you before. Some of you were bad sinners. I mean, the world will look at you. Yeah, you were a sinner. I was a good sinner. I don't mean that I sinned well. I was somebody that in the world's eyes was a good person. And in my own eyes was a good person. So it was more difficult to, for me to recognize that I needed to be saved because I'd look at the people around me, and keep in mind I was a lawyer at the time. I'd look at the people around me and I would say, but I'm not doing that. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm paying my taxes. I basically don't lie. I consider my... I mean, there were people... Well, you understand what lying is. See, we say, well, I don't lie, but it depends on how you define lying. That the Bible says we were God's enemies. What made me his enemy? I was working against his purposes. I was establishing my own kingdom. And that's what you were doing. See, a kingdom is ruled by the king of that domain. And it's that king's will that's being carried out. In my life, everything I did was to carry out my will. How I related to people was to get my will done. So that means I was establishing my own kingdom. And in my kingdom, I was king. So my kingdom had to be vying against God's kingdom. Because only one can be king of the universe. And you were doing the same. That's how I was his enemy. It wasn't that I was maybe going around doing a lot of bad things. I was establishing my own kingdom in my own life, in my body. I better not go there. Who's king of your body? You or the Spirit of God? Because the Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is he a tenant? Does he rent space? Or does he own it? Do you own your body and you're allowing him to have space? Who owns your body? Who owns your mind? what you allow yourself to think about. Who owns them? Getting quiet in here. All right. I'm getting uncomfortable. We better move on. Paul's point here is, while we were king of our own kingdom in rebellion against his kingdom, that's when he esteemed you as more valuable than himself. It wasn't after he cleaned you up It wasn't after he put his spirit in you. It wasn't when you were doing his will and coming to church and serving him. No, it was before you couldn't get to that place if he didn't love you first and act on that love. You couldn't get to that place. So this scripture says, while you were profaning his name, oh, I didn't take the Lord's name in vain, did you? Anytime you used his name, without faith behind it. It's in vain. In vain doesn't mean swearing. It means useless. Without a relationship. While we were yet His enemy, sinners, trying to do our own thing, our own purposes, while we were there, and because he knew we could not do anything about it himself, ourselves, he esteemed you in your sin as more important than him in his holiness and righteousness and majesty and glory. 
that's the definition, the living definition of this love that we're commanded to walk in with one another. That's a love that when the world sees it, they know there has to be a God because there's no natural way to live that out. That love is so powerful. Forty-some years ago, there was a man that went, a minister that went down on the streets of New York named David Wilkerson. He found a head of a gang, Nicky Cruz, and tried to witness to him, and he rejected him. He rebelled against him, and he finally, I don't remember, it's been so long since I've read the story, but he got him in a corner. He was going to kill him and cut him up, and David Wilkerson kept loving him with all the vile that was coming out of his mouth. It says, if you cut me into a thousand pieces, every piece is still going to love you. And he'd never run into that before. He'd done everything he could. Nicky Cruz had done everything he could to get this man to react in some selfish way. But the love of God shed abroad in his heart of David Wilkerson rose up and said, even if you kill me, I'm going to love you. He couldn't deal with that kind of love naturally. It got through and broke through and he broke and started a powerful ministry called Teen Challenge and affected many lives in many other ways. Through the love, God's love coming through one man, that kind of love. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. Verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent His only Son, begotten Son, into the world that we might live through Him. And in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave his, sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a big $4 word that means that he used his son and poured his wrath out for your sin and my sin on his son. He beat his own son. Isaiah 53 said it pleased God to bruise his son. Why would it please him? The same way it says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He did not enjoy going through the suffering on the cross. But the joy that put him through it was you. What pleased the father to bruise his son was he could have you. He didn't take pleasure in beating his son. He took pleasure because he knew he could have you if his son paid that price. The propitiation of our sins. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. The two things that, self, that, that, that selfish wants to do, selfishness wants to do, is it wants to promote itself and it wants to protect itself at all costs. Promote ourselves and protect ourselves. So we've seen that Jesus, living out this love, not only did not promote himself, he promoted you over himself. And not only did not protect himself, he laid down his protections so that he could have you and could have me. Now let's go over to Matthew chapter 5. These are verses that used to trouble me. Any, have you ever have verses that just trouble you? You, just, you want to explain them away and yet they say what they say? This is, of course, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and we could take time and go through a number of these things, but I want to read a specific part of this to you that applies here. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 38. You have heard it said, and it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, we're talking about what this God kind of love is like, and we're contrasting it to human love, which is rooted in Satan and his way of thinking. So you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was under the Old Testament, of course. 
But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Anyone who wants to sue you to take away your tunic or your cloak, give him your cloak also. Well, that would put the lawyers out of business right there. I mean, that's why I don't like it. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks from you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. I'll be very frank with you. That used to trouble me. I'd read through it, but I didn't want to think about it. Because you want to kind of dismiss it away. Well, I, but it says what it... I mean, in my Bible, it's in red, so it has to be true. Jesus said it. Does that mean that I just, you know, don't put my money in a bank and I just leave it on the front yard, that I don't have locks on my windows and just, you know, invite people in? You know, if you want to steal from me, come. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about this attitude of self-preservation and self-promotion, of putting self first. That's what he's talking about. Because what happens if somebody comes up to you and pushes you like that? Your reaction is to what? Push back. It may not be physically. It may be emotionally. Suppose somebody says something to you at just the wrong time. I say, my mind works quickly. There's a lawyer still functions in there somewhere. And I got an email the other day that was saying some unkind things that weren't true. And I'm telling you, I had four pages, four paragraphs already drafted before I had my, I was, you know, put my fingers to the keyboard. I got a letter that was, 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 you know, one of those letters you get. By the way, let me tell you something about letters. I don't read them if they're not signed. Because unless you want to identify who you are, I don't want to read what you have to say. That's my policy. If you want to write me letters, fine, but you sign them. Your name. (laughs) Don't sign Pastor Ray. I know his handwriting. (laughs) And this was an unsigned one, and I wasn't thinking. I just went ahead and got into it. And my mind wants to come up with answers. And I can come up with answers. And I checked in here. I said, God, I represent you. I don't have the privilege of defending myself. I am your representative in this place. And I have a responsibility to you in whatever I say or whatever I do to represent you. I have that responsibility when I'm out in public. Now, the fact that I'm on television brings that home clear because I almost every week have somebody come up to me and said, oh, I see you on television. I have no idea who they are. They don't even go to church here. But I would do it whether I were... I was doing it before I was on television. Govern myself by what he sees and what pleases him. Not by what I can get away with. And so this is where he's talking to. Now this is the key to understanding this. Because he goes on to say, You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which was under the Old Testament. But I say to you, and see, here's... Here's where we separate God's kind of love from the world's kind of love. The world's kind of love, the love that you and I were born into, that we consider in the world good love, the kind of love that's, that's even talked about at the end of Tale of Two Cities, the kind of love that, you know, that, that, oh, we give to other people and all that's good, but ultimately, what am, I, am I getting attention back? I feel good about myself for doing this. There's a, there's a, there's a reward that's coming back somehow. But when you get into this kind of love, there's no, there's no reward you're getting back here. Because look what he says to do. He said, but I said you love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. That's not what I want to do. I want to get back. I want to hate those that hate me. I want to curse those that curse me. You 
Our flesh wants to get back if somebody does something against us. Not only does it want to get back at others that do something against us, even if they didn't do it to me, I want to see somebody else pay the price they ought to pay. So if somebody does something to you, I want to see them pay for what they did to you. Because it's not right. But we went back and saw that that was Lucifer's whole point of view, was what was right, his rights. He defended his rights, he asserted his rights, he protected his rights. Because he thought, and here's the key again, he thought that his rights came from his own nature and beauty. He forgot that everything he had, he did not have because of a right. He had because of God's mercy and God's gift. And the reason you and I think we have our rights is because we forget that we live and breathe and we walk and talk by His permission by His grace. Romans chapter 9. Paul gets into this very ticklish discussion about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And he says, that's not fair. It's not fair that God should then judge Pharaoh for having a hardened heart if God's the one that hardened it. Does that sound fair to you? Doesn't sound fair to me. It didn't sound fair to Paul. So Paul gets into this and his answer is so powerful because his answer is this, is who are you to think you've got the right to question what God's done? What happens is we forget God's the creator of everything. It's what I said in Isaiah when he says, I'm going to send, I'm going to, I've made you one way I want to change who you are. He says, doesn't the potter have the right to say to the clay, I made a mistake here, I'm going to reform you? And what does the clay have a right to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? And his whole point in this discussion about Pharaoh is he said, if God says I want to be... See, what is is we think God's not being fair to Pharaoh because he hardened his heart. And understand this, if we... If, if we held God to being fair with all of us, I don't want to. I don't want Him to be just and fair with me. Do you? The whole point in there is God has set His justice aside and become... Now, he didn't, he didn't abandon it because He satisfied the justice by taking your place. But He gave mercy to you and me. So he's saying, why do, why do we think we have a right to judge how God meets out His mercy? So here's the key here. Verse 44 again. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you? Do you know what that means? That means they didn't do it by accident, but they intentionally picked you out and said, I'm going to take advantage of you. See, it's one thing if somebody makes a mistake and hurts you, but it's another if they purposely singled you out and said, I want to use you for my own advantage. Spitefully. It's not right. It's not fair. Pray for those that spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Verse 45 is the key. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes the sun to shine on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collector... And that was not a compliment. Don't even the tax collectors do the same? So he's showing here that this kind of love that we're commanded to walk in, this kind of love that he displayed towards us is a love that doesn't react the way the world reacts. Because he said, when you do that, you're just like the world. We just dress up nicer spiritually. We just talk nicer. 
But unless we're walking in this love, it counts as zero. Why? Because God is this kind of love. Verse 47. If you greet only your brethren, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, if the only people that you bless and greet and love are people that love and greet you back, that's what the world does. That doesn't make us any different than the world. And unfortunately, that's how the world sees the church because by and large, that's what the church has done. Go back to verse 45 because it's the key. Do these things that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now understand this. Doing these things does not make you a son. What he's saying is you are a child of God. This is how God acts. Act like your Father. Now how does God act? Let's go back and look at this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What if God, were, were we evil in God's eyes? Yes, we just went back over that. Did God resist us? No. But whatever slaps you in your right cheek, turn to him the left also. See, when somebody slaps you, your reaction is to defend yourself. What he's saying is main, remain vulnerable to them. We slapped God's face. Oh, you may not have reached up and gone, whack, but we did it with things we said. We did it with attitudes. We said things that were a slap in his face. When God was generous and provided things we needed, did you ever complain to him? Did you ever complain about what we didn't have? That's a slap in his face. Did he turn and slap you back? Oh, my glad he didn't. Did he protect himself? Did he defend his own character? Did he defend and said, don't you know what I've done for you? He remained vulnerable to you and continued to love you and continued to give and continued to provide that you may be like sons, like your father who is in heaven. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. God will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. God's heart is so filled up to pour out on you whatever you need in abundance. So God's not just giving to you what you need. He's, the, Ephesians 2 says, 1 says, He's lavished His grace on you. He didn't just give you what you needed. He took everything He could give and poured it out on you. Romans 8.32 said, He who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up from us all, how will He not also together with Him freely give you everything He has? In other words, we've compelled God to do one thing for us, and He opens His heart and His treasure chest and pours out on you all that He has. He's not meeting out the little, smallest amount He can. He's giving to you everything you'll let him. That's his attitude towards you. That's what he's talking about here. That's what this love is like. Verse 44, but I say to you, uh, you verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your enemies. Uh, you shall love your, na- you sh- uh, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. We've just gone back and established we were God's enemy. What if he hated us and only loved his friends? He didn't have any on this earth. But he loved us, not just with warm feelings from heaven, but he loved us and laid his son's life down. His son loved you and me enough to to pour out and empty himself of all those privileges and all of those rights and all of that glory to lay his life down for you and me while we were his enemies. And look at it from this point. Percentage-wise, because the Bible tells us in John 3.16, he did this for the whole world. He didn't just do this for those who'd be saved. He poured his life out for everyone, even those that never will accept him. He gave his life regardless of how you were going to respond.
Love your, you say, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Love your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. We've cursed him. You ever take his name in vain? Who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. We use him all the time. We use him all the time. Oh, God, I'm in trouble. Please get me out. We use his strength to get us out. No, but we go off and serve ourselves and do what we want to do. And we just leave him there. We use him. And sometimes spitefully. But how does he treat us back? That we may be sons of your fathers in heaven. Turn me very quickly over Romans 12. We won't have a chance to finish this. But I want to show you these verses. Because Paul says the same thing over here. This is the kind of love. When it says in Ephesians 4.16, the body building itself up in love. This is a definition of that love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Sounds like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, doesn't it? Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. Let's scroll down, skip down to um, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another and do not set your mind on high things but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, so he's talking to the church, do not avenge yourselves. That's what we're talking about. Do not avenge yourselves. Who's going to do it? But rather give place to wrath. But rather, do not avenge yourselves. But rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, settling up accounts is not your business, it's God's business. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil. That's what Satan. Satan, when you're attacked with these things, is trying to overcome you with evil. Do not allow him to overcome you with evil. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but the Bible talks in Hebrews about a root of bitterness being formed down in your heart by which many are defiled because it's what comes out of your heart that affects people's lives around you. Do not allow evil to overcome you. See, we're trying to fight the evil that's out in the world. We've got to fight the evil that's in here you know what they said about me? That's a fiery dart to sow a seed of evil in your heart because it's getting you to look at you just as he looked at him before he was cast out of heaven. But overcome evil with good. Love never fails. And I'll leave you, we're going to go on next week and read more of this because there's more in here in chapter 13. But I want to leave you with this, and this is so important. Back to where we started. 1 Corinthians 11, which we read on communion, says that because some of you did not, some of them did not properly regard the body of Christ, did not evaluate or esteem the body of Christ, that doesn't just mean him, it means the body here. Many of you are sick and weakly, and some of you sleep. That means have died. Whether you're walking in love affects your health. Science has told us that. That if you're holding unforgiveness and jealousy and anger inside of you, it will begin to show up in your body. Medicine tells us that. But it's a spiritual principle because God is love. 
where we're headed with this is I'm going to teach you that if you will begin to walk in this type of love, this dimension of love, you start to walk in a level of life that's above the level that most of the church walks in. John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and that more abundantly. The abundant life is not primarily the car you drive, the house you live in, and the clothes you wear. They can be byproducts of it. They're not wrong, but that's not what he's talking about, about the abundant life. The abundant life is living life at a level or plane where Satan cannot get at you. Jesus walked there. Others have walked close. And that's the love that the body's commanded to walk in. That's the love that we are, to, by each of us taking our part and doing what we're called to do, are causing this, his body to build itself up in love. This is my commandment, not suggestion. This is my commandment that you love one another the way I've loved you. 